back to another great Coast to Coast Cults episode. I am your host, Matt, and today we are going to be looking into the People's Temple. Before we move into this episode, once again, thank you for all of your support that you have been showing me. It's been amazing. It's been great. Thank you once again. Hopefully you guys have been having a great day, a great week. You know, it's midway through um, the week again, so stay positive, stay, stay, stay safe, I should say. But if you haven't followed us on Facebook, do so. You know, we're under After Dark Coast to Coast Killers. And with that, you know, we're making sure we keep you guys updated on that page. We really are. Uh, we post new episodes, upcoming episodes, sneak peeks of episodes, and series, um, just the whole 10 yards. If you are new and you want to be following us, go and do so. Follow us on any platform, pretty much, that you've been listening to us or found us on. And make sure that you're notified on each episode. You just hit follow make sure that you're notified if you are already following us and want to get notified make sure you get notified it's that easy so this episode is going to have a viewer's discretion advised because we're going to be talking about mass murder and mass suicide and with that let's get into this episode we need to understand a little bit about the people's temple what the people's temple is what it does, you know, all that just. So the People's Temple is originally called People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. It was founded out of Indiana by Reverend Jim Jones, and it is defined as a Christian new religious movement, utopian social change church movement. So... With that being said, how we're going to do this is we're going to talk about why Jim Jones founded this church, his beliefs, what made this church how it was and how it is known today. We're going to talk about why they moved to California and, you know, the aftermath of this. Jim Jones had became obsessed with communism and he was frustrated with how the Red Scare was affecting and attacking communists. There was, among other things, that provided clerical inspiration for Jones, as he described in a biographical recording, I decided how I can demonstrate my Marxism. The thought was, infiltrate the church. So I consciously made a decision to look into the prospect. So once again, this was before he made this church, this temple, whatever you want to call it, this cult. Although Jones feared that he would end up being the victim of a backlash for being a communist, he was surprised with when a Methodist superintendent, whom he met through the American Communist Party, helped him enter the church, despite his knowledge that Jones was a communist. In 1952, Jones became a student pastor in Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indiana. 
but then he left the church because because it barred him from integrating African Americans into his congregation. In 1954, Jones founded his own church in a rented space in Indianapolis. At first, he named it the Community Unity Church. He previously observed a faith-healing service at the Seventh-day Baptist Church, which led him to conclude that such healings could attract people and generate income, which he could use to accomplish his social goals. Jones and the Temple's members knowingly faked healings because they found that the healings increased people's faith and generated money resources which they could use to help the poor and finance the church. So they were uh, pretty much scamming people. You know, we see this a lot in uh, modern-day religious cults. And I, I, I know cults is a huge expression, but we look at uh, Joel Osteen and all these other rich pastors with mega churches and how they use their faith and people's vulnerability by getting money from them. In 1956, Jones bought his first church building located in a racially mixed Indianapolis neighborhood. He first named his church Wings of Deliverance. Later that year, he renamed it the People's Temple Full Gospel Church, the first time he used the phrase People's Temple. Jones's healings and perpetrated clairvoyant revelations attracted spiritualists. And as all these people do, they attract many, many sorts of people. Sometimes they attract the government, like the FBI. We've seen with FBI file that, you know, these two FBI agents went to uh, another pastor's church or another hillish church to see if it could perform these magical abilities. But not only that, these type of things will attract many, many people, whether you're a believer or not. In order to increase publicity, the People's Temple organized large religious conventions with other Pentecostal pastors. With Jones continuing to disguise the fact that he was using religion to further his political ideology. Those conventions drew as many as 11,000 attendees. As Jones and the other preachers conducted healings and impressed attendees by revealing private information, this included addresses, phone numbers, even social security numbers which private detectives could easily discover beforehand. Jones and Temple members also drove through various cities in Indiana and Ohio on recruiting and fundraising efforts. The ideals of the Temple stressed different ideas, asking members to attend in casual clothes so poor members would not fill out a place and providing shelter for the needy. While the temple had increased its African-American membership from 15% to nearly 50%, the temple hired African-American preacher Archie James to further these attempts. 
Pastor James was one of the first to commit to, to Jones' the social, socialist collective program. Sorry. In 1959, the church joined the Christian Church, or the Disciples of Christ, and was renamed the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel. This affiliation was successful to both raise the dwindling membership and to restore the reputation of the organization. In February 1960, the temple opened a soup kitchen for the poor and expanded their social services to include rent assistant, job placement services, free canned goods, clothing, and coal for the winter. And the coal helped with heating at the time. His wife and him helped to increase the Temple Soup's kitchen uh, service to an average about 2,800 meals per month. The Temple's public profile was further elevated when Jones was appointed to the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. He engaged in public attempts to integrate businesses and was the subject of much local media coverage. Now, before we continue, you know, you may think, oh, what makes this guy so bad? You know, he's helping out the poor. You know, he's giving food. He's giving, you know, his financial resources to the poor. As we move further into learning more about this church and this cult, you understand that there is something a lot more different than just what is on the surface. Jones had read extensively about Father Divine, the founder of the International Peace Commit or Peace Mission Movement. Jones and members of the temple visited Divine several times a day. While Jones studied his writings and taped recordings of his sermons, the temple printed Divine's text for its members and began to preach that members should abstain from sex and only adopt children. In 1959, Jones tested the very rhetorical style that Divine had used in his sermon. When he made the speech, many members were captivated with laws and crescendos, as Jones challenged individual members in front of the group. The speech also marked the beginning of the temple's underlying us versus them message. Jones carefully wove in the temple's home for senior citizens, and it was established on the basis from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Quoting Karl Marx's critique of the Gotha program. He did this because he knew that the Christian audience would recognize the similarities with text from the Acts of Apostles 434-35, which states distribution was made to each as any had need. Jones would repeatedly cite that passage to paint Jesus as a communist, while at the same time attacking much of the text of the Bible. So we kind of see this Jones guy isn't necessarily about God. He wants to paint a picture within Christianity that draws 
a different line than what people are used to. It's like uh, today's uh, conflict with how people say, Jesus said this, Jesus supported this. In reality, Jesus was neutral. He wasn't a socialist. He wasn't necessarily a Republican or, or conservative. He did what he needed to help people. And in the case of Jones, yes, ideally he is helping people, but at the same time he's manipulating a different picture over a religion that many people have been there for a long time experiencing. And magically, Jones had this picture of saying, you know, Jesus was a communist. He helped the poor. He gave to the needy what they wanted. And with that in Jones's mind, he was like, you know, this is what Jesus is. He isn't anything else. I don't care about the text of the Bible, but this is what Jesus is. The temple began tightening control over its organization, asking more of its members than did other churches. It required that members spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with the temple family rather than the blood relatives. The beginning of a process to wean members from outside contact and redirect their lives toward a total commitment to the temple and its goals. Jones began to offer a deal towards a socialist collective, which he referred to as religious communalism, in which members would donate the material possessions to the temple in exchange for the temple meeting all those members' needs. Pastor James was the first to commit. You know, before we move forward, I'm going to say a lot of the churches do this. I'm not saying their their uh, their ideology is, you know, communism, but a lot of churches do this. I, I every church in my town, you know, they have their church members give them something, whether it's a donation of money, a donation of clothes, toys, you know, whatnot, and they would uh, ideally give back to people in the community or the people in their church. The temple had little luck converting most Midwesterns to communist ideals, even when disguised as religion. Admiring the 1959 Cuban Revolution, Jones traveled to the island nation in 1960 in an unsuccessful attempt to persuade poor black Cubans to move to his congregation in, in Indiana. The temple's religious message transition during this period and to one trending between atheism and the subtle notion that Jones was a Christ-like figure. While Temple Aids complained privately, Jones said that the new message was needed to foster members' dedication to the temple's larger goals. It maintained such implications until the mid-late 1970s. In 1961, James claimed he had a vision in which Indianapolis and Chicago were destroyed in a nuclear attack, convincing aides that the temple needed to look for a new location. According to a 1962 Esquire magazine article, listed the nine safest places to be in a nuclear war, with Belo Horizonte, Brazil, sorry if I mispronounced that, 
um, topping a list because of location and atmospheric conditions. Jones traveled through Brazil through, from 1962 through early 1963. He requested money from the temple while in Rio de Janeiro, but the temple lacked adequate funds for such a request because of shaky finances in Jones' absence. He sent a preacher and had became a follower in Brazil back to Indiana to help stabilize the temple. In 1963, he returned back to the United States. I know that's a lot of information about, you know, his ideology and his uh, temple, you know, but ideally, he believed in such drastic ideals or ideology, I should say, um, that he just wanted everyone to follow, even his members, and some of his members weren't just having it. Yeah, I'm not saying they left, they may have stayed, um, but they just weren't having it. Then he moved to California. His uh, communism blanketing religion wasn't revealed until he revealed it until the late 1960s. By then, he was openly revealing the Turpin sermons, his apostolic socialism concept. Sorry about that, once again. Um, The concept often loosely mixed tense of socialism. During this period, Jones preached to new members that the Holy Spirit was within them, but that Jones' healing power demonstrated that he was a special manifestation of Christ's revolution. He also preached that the U.S. was the Antichrist and capitalist, capitalism was the Antichrist system. Jones preached of an imminent nuclear holocaust, as he's always done throughout his life, um, after which the surviving elect would create a new socialist Eden on Earth. In 1965, he predicted that the nuclear holocaust would occur on July 15th, 1967. Accordingly, Jones preached that the temple must move to Redwood Valley, California. In July of 1965, he let approximately 140 members, half of whom were black, to Redwood Valley and officially reestablished his church there. The addition of Deputy District Attorney Timothy Stone greatly greatly increased the temple's credibility in the area, which increased the membership of the temple. At this point, Jones began deriding traditional Christianity as a flyaway religion. And like I uh, talked about a few minutes ago, he believed that he was Jesus, but he also believed that Jesus was communist and anything out or that was put in the Bible, I should say, was no longer necessary. He rejected the Bible as white men's justification to dominate women and enslave people of color. He authored a booklet he would distribute in the temple called the Letter Killeth pointing out what he felt were the contradictions, absurdities, and atrocities in the Bible. 
but also stating that the Bible contained great truths. Jones preached that the, that the divine principle equated with love and love equated with socialism. He said that the Bible contained beliefs about only sick or only a sky god or a buzzer god who was no god at all. You know, it, it, we hear this uh, thing where people are like, oh, he's up in the sky. You know, you guys pray to a, a person that's just hanging out up there. You know, ideally, you know, from my experience in religion, God is everywhere. You know, God is just everywhere. Um, so, you know, it's it's whatever. But anyhow, let's move forward. So, because of the limited expansion in the Redwood Valley, Ukiah area, eventually seemed necessary to, the, to move the church's seat power to urban area. In 1970, the temple began holding services in San Francisco and Los Angeles and established permanent facilities in those cities in 1971 and 1972. In San Francisco, the temple occupied a former Scottish Rite Temple at 1859 Gary Boulevard in Los Angeles. The temple occupied the former building of the First Church of Christ Scientist at 1366 South Alvarado Street. By 1972, the temple called Redwood, Va- Redwood Valley the mother church of a statewide political movement. From the start, LA's facility's primary purpose were to recruit members and to serve as a way station for the temple's weekly bus trips across California. The temple set up a permanent staff in L.A. and arranged bus trips there every other week. The Los Angeles facility was larger than San Francisco's. Its central location at the corner of Alvarado and Hoover Streets permitted easy geographic access for the black membership for Watson Compton. Now, it seems like, you know, He's just trying to recruit a specific group because I I don't know if uh, it is like this or was like this. I mean, but uh, it seems like he finds the poor people, weaker people, easier to manipulate. You know, we see, we talk about a lot of this with what race he tries to get what uh, communities he tries to put his ideas in. He's, he's pretty much telling the poor, hey, you follow me, I got you. I got you what you need. You want it, I'm going to get it for you. Even if it's from other members within the side of the temple, you're still going to get it. You know, he just seems manipulative in these type of communities. Although some descriptions of the People's Temple emphasize Jones's autocratic control over its operations, in reality, the temple possessed a complex leadership st- structure with decision-making power, and, on, and it was pretty much evenly dispersed amongst every member. Within that structure, temple members were unwittingly and gradually sub- 
subjected to uh, mind control and behavior modification techniques brought from post-revolutionary China and North Korea. The temple tightly defines psychological boundaries that enemies such as traitors to the temple cross at their own peril. With the secrecy and caution, Jones demanded in recruiting led to decreased overall membership. They also helped him foster hero worship of himself as the ultimate socialist. In the 1970s, they eventually uh, continued with the socialist model, and that was a more formal hierarchy. At the top were the temple staff, a select group of predominantly college-educated white women that undertook the temple's most sensitive missions. They necessarily acclimated, or acclimated, I should say, themselves to an end justify the means of philosophy. The earliest member was Sandy Bradshaw, a socialist from New York. Others included Carolyn Latin, a communist since the age of 15, who had a child with Jones, Sharon Amos, who worked for the Social Services Department, Patty Cartmel, which was his secretary, and Terry Buford, who was a Navy brat turned pacifist. If you don't know what a pacifist is, it is pretty much opposition to war, militarism, or violence. Um, the group was often scorned as elitist within the egalitarian temple organization and viewed as secret police. The temple's planning commission was its governing board. Membership quickly bloomed from 50 to over 100 during the week, members convened for meetings in various Redwood Valley locations, sometimes until dawn. The rank and file members, um, whom outstanders of the temple called them troops, consisted of working class members who were 70 to 80% black. They set up chairs for meetings, filled offering boxes, and did other tasks. Many of them were attracted to the temple's quasi-socialist approach both because of the temple's political education offers and because the temple's highly passionate congregations that still maintained the familiar forms of evangelical prayers and black gospels. Jones, who also surrounded himself with several dozen mostly relations or mostly what I mean privileged members in their 20s and 30s, who had skills in law, accounting, nursing, teaching, music, and administration. This latter group carried out public relations, financial duties, and more mundane chores while bringing in good salaries from well-paying outside jobs. Before we continue, here is a message from today's sponsor. Again, Anchor is free and easy to use. And if you want to make a podcast, make some money, go do it. Go download the Anchor app once again through any app store. Without further ado, let's uh, continue with this episode. We talked primarily about, you know, the start of the church, basic ideologies. Now we are going to uh, 
talk a little bit more about the recruiting and faith healings and a little bit about fundraising of this temple. Um, I'm not even going to really call it church anymore. We're just going to call it a temple or a cult, however you want to define this. The temple used 10 to 15 Greyhound-type bus cruisers to transport members up and down California freeways each week for recruitment and fundraising. Jones always rode in a bus, and that bus was number 7, which contained armed guards and a special section lined with protective plates that were metal. He told members that the church would not bother scheduling a trip unless it could net $100,000, and the temple's goals for annual net income from bus trips was $1 million. Beginning in the 1970s, the, buses, or the bus caravan also traveled with, across the U.S. quarterly, including to Washington, D.C. In 1973, Representative George Brown Jr. entered a lengthy allotatory description of the temple in the Congressional Record. The Washington Post, Post ran an August 18, uh, 1973 editorial page item stating that the 660 temple visitors were the hands-down winners of anybody's Tourist of the Year award after spending hours cleaning up the Capitol grounds. The temple distributed pamphlets in cities along the route of these fundraising trips, bragging of Jones's prowess of special, spiritual healing, without mentioning the temple's Marxist goals. Stop included large cities such as Houston, Detroit, and Cleveland, and temple members pretended to be locals and acted as shills in the various fake healings and revelations. Local viewers did not realize they were in the minority in the audience. The weekly take from offerings and healing services was $15,000 to $25,000 in L.A., and $8,000 to $12,000 in San Francisco. There were some some smaller collections from trips around the Mother Church in Redwood Valley as well. Eventually, the temple set up Truth Enterprises, a direct mailing branch that sent out 30,000 to 50,000 mailers monthly to people who had attended temple services or written to the temple after listening to temple radio programs. In the mail, People sent donations of all sorts from all over the continental U.S., Hawaii, including South America and Europe. In addition to receiving these donations, the temple sold trinkets, such as pieces of Jones's robes, healing oil, temple rings, keychains, and lockets. In peak periods, mallet revenue grossed $300 to $400 daily. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, this figure was a surprise to Jones himself. Although Jones had earlier asked temple members to destroy photos of him because he did not want members worshipping him as Catholics worshipped plaster statues. Jeannie and Al Mills, who would later take defect or I should say who would like later defect, sorry about that, um, convinced Jones to sell anointed and blessed photos to raise money. Jones worried that they 
they're going to get me for mail fraud someday. In, the, in 1973, the Temple also formed Brotherhood Records. This was a record label that produced music from the Temple's large interracial youth choir and orchestra. Now I could talk about the size and the scope of this, but I, I'm guessing you already know this guy's, the, the size and the scope of this temple. Now, instead of just being isolated in California, now they're pretty much spread out everywhere else because they're taking trips and mailing things to people. These people think that Jones is a spiritual healer and that these donations of money and whatever else they sent was necessary. Like I said, these people were being scammed across the United States and definitely in these communities where it was strictly uneducated and poor communities. It was huge advantage to Jones and this temple. He sat in these communities with the temple and said, we got you. You give us what we want, you get what you need. Now there was a series that ran in 1972 by the San Francisco Examiner and Indianapolis Star that ran the first four parts of a seven part story of the temple as, as its first public expose, I guess. Um, Ken Solving, which was the journalist that wrote these, reported on several aspects of church dealings it claims of healings and Jones's ritual of throwing Bibles down a church, yelling, This black book has held you down you people for 2,000 years. It has no power. Once again, Jones also believed that he was kind of like Jesus. He believed that God just reincarnated Jesus into him. Even though I'm pretty sure he had to believe at some point that wasn't true. Some defections occurred, most especially in 1973, known as the Gang of Eight. And this was defected together because the Gang of Eight were aware of threats to potential defectors. They, sus- they suspected Jones would send a search party to look for them. Their fears proved correct. Jones employed multiple search parties, including one which scanned highways from, from a rented airplane. The Gang of Eight drove three trucks loaded loaded with firearms toward Canada, avoiding U.S. Highway 101 because they feared taking firearms over the U.S.-Canada border. Sorry, um, The group traveled instead to the hills of Montana, where they wrote a long letter documenting their complaints. Former Temple member Jeannie Mills later wrote that Jones called 30 members to his home and forebodingly declared that in light of the mass defection, in order to keep our apostolic socialism, we should all kill ourselves and leave a note saying that because of harassment, a social group cannot exist at this time. Jones became furious, waving a pistol at the planning commission and referring to the Gang of Eight as defectors and Coca-Cola revolutionaries. While the temple did not execute the suicide plan, 
Jones described, it did conduct faked, fake suicide rituals in the following years. I probably could talk about more about the San Francisco location, like the temple feared that the IRS was investigating its religious tax exemption um, to even, you know, a New York Times article stating that um, a person's husband was trying to achieve social change by mobilizing people through religion. Um, and I guess that was probably his way for something. Um, it doesn't really be that specific. Um, but it just continues going on and going on. Like uh, how Jones met with several people, like the mayor, um, which he appointed as chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. Um, he also received support of political figures such as Moscone, Jerry Brown, uh, Willie Brown, Harvey Milk even. Um, let's see. Even though Willie Brown visited the temple numerous times as both publicly in support of Jones, um, he, despite the investigations of um, cult activity, and then he uh, met with some presidential election or electors, including First Lady uh, Rosalind Carter. Um, let's see here. Um, the temple did arouse police suspicion after Jones praised a liberation army in the Bay Area and that some or all of the leaders from this army was attending temple meetings. Um, police also had their suspicions raised after the defection of Joyce Shaw and the mysterious death soon after of her husband, Bob Houston. And then there was some tension that rose between the temple and the nation of Islam in San Francisco, where the group held a large spiritual jubilee at the LA Convention Center which was attended by thousands, including prominent political figures to heal the rift. Um, the Temple Forged Media Alliances and the move to San Francisco also opened the group to media scrutiny. When Jones and 100 members fled to the Temple's Guyana settlement following media investigations, the mayor issued a press release stating that the office would not investigate the temple. During this time, Harvey Milk um, spoke at temple political rallies and wrote a letter to Pres President Jimmy Carter after the investigations began, in which he accused a person um, who at that point had defected the temple and was attempting to execrate relatives from Guyana of telling bold-faced lies. Now, this is where we talk about the mass murder and suicide of Jonestown. Um, in 1974, the People's Temple signed a lease to rent land in Guana. The community was established on this piece of property and was named the People's Temple Agricultural Project. Its informal name was Jonestown. The settlement had as few as 50 residents in early 1977.
Jones had saw Jonestown as both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary for media scrutiny that had started with the kin-solving articles. Former Temple member Tim Carter said the Temple moved to Jonestown because in 1974, uh, what we saw in the U.S. was creeping fascism, quote-unquote. Carter explained it was apparent that corporations was getting much larger and their influence was growing within the government and the U.S. is a racist place, uh, once again, quote-unquote. And this was coming from uh, Tim Carter once again. He said the temple concluded that Guyana was a place in a black country where our black members could live in peace. It was a socialist government and it was the only English-speaking country in South America. Media scrutiny increased after allegations by former members placed further pressure on Jones, especially after a 1977 article written by Marshall Kilduff in New West Magazine. Just before the publication of this piece, editor Rosalie Wright telephoned Jones to read him the article. Wright explained that she was only doing so before the publication because of all the support letters that this magazine received on Jones's behalf from the governor of California and others. While still on the phone listening to the allegations contained in the article, James, I mean not James, but Jones wrote a, new, a note to Temple members in the room with him that said, we leave tonight, notify Georgetown. After Jones left for Guyana, he encouraged Temple members to follow him there. The population grew to over 900 people by late 1978. Those who moved there were promised a tropical paradise free of the supposed wickedness of the outside world. On November 17, 1978, Representative Leo Ryan was investigating claims of abuse within the temple and visited Jonestown. During his visit, a number of temple members expressed a desire to leave with him, and on November 18th, they accompanied Ryan to the local airstrip, airstrip at Port Katama. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Um, they were intercepted by self-styled temple security guards who opened fire on the group. Now this is uh, where, you know, how Jones sent these search parties and they didn't really do anything. Jones is doing something here. He's not just, you know, being a nice guy that gets stuff to the poor. He's a guy that says, hey, you kill these people for me. You kill anyone that tries to leave, and we're good. And that's what he did. He had these uh, guards kill everyone there. Including Ryan, three journalists, and one of the defectors. And he also injured nine others. A few seconds of gunfire from the incident were captured by video by NBC cameraman Bob Brown, which was one of the journalists that were killed in the attack. That evening in Jonestown, Jones ordered his congregation to drink uh, cyanide-laced grape-flavored flavor aid, I guess. I think that's just like Kool-Aid, I think. And all 
um, 918 people died, including 276 children. It was the greatest single loss of American civilian life and a deliberate act until the events of September 11th of 2001. This includes four that died at the temple headquarters, the Guyanese capital of Georgetown. Now, the aftermath of this, obviously, would be devastating. You know, you would have everybody reporting. You would, you would have everybody knowing this. And that's what exactly happened. The national media turned to the temple San Francisco headquarters and the relative of the Jonestown victims. The mass killing became one of the best-known events in U.S. history as measured by the Gallup poll and appeared on the cover of several newspapers and magazines, including Time, four months afterward. In addition, according to various press reports, after the Jonestown suicides, surviving Temple members in the U.S. announced their fears of being targeted by a hit squad that would be composed of Jonestown survivors, which... I don't know why, but I guess it happens. Um, similarly, in 1979, the Associated Press reported a U.S. Congregational AIDS claim that there were 120 white brainwashed assassins uh, from Jonestown awaiting the trigger word to pick up their hit. Temple insider Michael Prokes, who had been ordered to deliver a suitcase which t- contained Temple's, Temple funds, which were supposed to be transferred to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, killed himself in March 1979, four months after the Jonestown incident. In the days leading up to his death, Proke sent notes to several people together with a 30-page statement he had written about the temple. He re- or Kane, I should say, uh, reprinted one copy of his Chronicle column, and Proke then arranged for a press conference in Modesto, California motel room, during which he read a statement to the a reporters who attended. He then ex- excused himself, entered a restroom, and fatally shot himself in the head. Before the tragedy, Temple member Paula Adams engaged in a romantic relationship with Guyana's ambassador to the U.S. Adams later, later married man. On October 24th, 1983, he fatally shot both Adams and the couple's child then fatally shot himself. Defecting member Harold Cordell lost 20 family members on the evening of the poisonings. The other family, which is uh, the Bogois family, I think, uh, which also had been defected, lost its daughter Marley, who was 18, while defector Vernon Gossany lost his son Mark, who was five. The mass suicide of the People's Temple has helped embedded the idea that all new religious movements are destructive in the public's mind. Brian R. Wilson argues against that point of viewing by pointing out that only four other such events have occurred within similar religious groups, like the Branch Davidens, the Solar Temple, and the Heaven's Gate. And eventually, you know, as a result, they went into bankruptcy and dissolution. There was lawsuits after lawsuit, you know, and then they just lost everything. 
The temple's former San Francisco headquarters was destroyed in the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake, which the site is now occupied by a post office branch. No, what a crazy story, but sadly, that's how a lot of cults end. No, they have such beliefs, they have such fears, and they take the easy way out. No, like Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate believed that uh, they would be rescued by God in a <clears throat> in an extraterrestrial spacecraft, and they all committed suicide. No. Jonestown and you know the temple had their fears and the temple committed suicide as well um, because they believed in what they believed in and it's true new age religious movements can end destructively I'm not saying all do majority of them do though and they will no, no matter what political belief or religious belief know what it is about it all ends badly thank you for listening to this episode you know if you want to learn more you can just research it online and with that that being said I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day and good luck to y'all guys you guys and you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Stay tuned for the next episode.